you read about or hear about a really significant financial investigation, there's a very good chance that IRSCI is involved in that case. Welcome to this edition of AML Conversations. In this episode, AML Right Source Vice Chairman John Byrne sits down with the Chief of the IRS Criminal Investigation Division, Don Fort, to talk about a number of important elements in the AML community. John and Don discuss private-public partnerships and how essential it is for law enforcement and their counterparts in the private sector to work together. Don also talks about the value of Bank Secrecy Act data, the importance of suspicious activity reports, and how all reports are analyzed and reviewed by the Internal Revenue Service's Criminal Investigation Division. This year marks 100 years since IRSCI has been in existence. John and Don talk about changes in financial crime over the past century and explore some of the similarities with crimes committed at the start of the IRSCI as they relate to crimes today. Now sit back and enjoy AML Conversations. So the first thing I have to say, we have Don Fort with us, the chief of IRSCI. Don, 100 years of IRSCI, which is uh, amazing uh, under, uh, under any circumstances, but just given all that's going on in the financial crime space in 2019 uh, and sadly beyond, it's, it's just so important that people recognize the value proposition of having uh, agents within the IRS that for such a long time have been dealing with financial crime. So I guess my first open-ended question is, uh, tell us a bit about, let's talk about the celebration this year. And I know celebration may seem uh, maybe not the best wording, although I think what we're doing here is we're recognizing the the great work of IRS, but your folks are so important to our community Tell us what some of the things that are going on, and then I'm going to talk to you a bit about the changes in financial crime over over the course of uh, of the existence of the organization. But tell us what's going on this year to recognize all the great work you and your staff are doing now and have done. Yeah, thanks, John. And just just let me start by thanking you for for having me on the podcast. I've been following this podcast for a while, so I'm uh, honored to be a part of it. So, yeah, I think celebration's the right word. It's an, it's an incredibly exciting time to be leading this agency. You know, 100 years is an amazing milestone. And really, for me, I'm humbled when I look back. You know, this agency started 100 years ago with uh, Elmer Irie, who was the first chief, started IRSCI with six agents, and he was really an investigator at heart. And, you know, for me now, 100 years later, to be sitting in this chair, leading this great organization, having worked my way up through the ranks and been with the organization over 28 years, about 28 years, rather, it's uh, it's humbling for me now to be able to to, uh, to carry that mantle. And, and really, th- there are a number of celebrations this year. The actual anniversary is on July 1st, so we're planning a fairly big event here in Washington, D.C. At our, at our headquarters, and we hope to have a number of dignitaries and other law enforcement heads, Treasury Secretary, and some other individuals to help celebrate that. And then on top of that, you know, we have 21 field offices. Each of those offices is planning some type of event, from a small, you know, event to large events. We're hoping to do something at Alcatraz. We're going to do something in September uh, in conjunction with the ACAMS event. So a lot of big events planned this year. And really excited, again, to be leading the organization into, into its 100th year. So Don, so, Don, one of the things that, again, the AML community clearly understands the value proposition of IRSCI, 
But for those that don't know uh, the roles and responsibilities of your agency, obviously people are generally aware of what the FBI does and certainly now Homeland Security since it uh, took in you know, DA, Secret Service, all those other agencies. But IRSCI has a particularly interesting focus in financial crime. Tell us a bit about what your what's in the world for your agents, because you, you folks, again, do what a lot of the other agencies do, but your focus is particularly interesting, I think. Yeah, so it, it's, uh, I describe it, it, you know, when I describe what we do, often we're behind the scenes. The other agencies a lot of times get a lot more publicity than we do. Uh, but, you know, we're behind the scenes on many of these cases. And I describe it to people as if you if you read about or hear about a really significant financial investigation, there's a very good chance that IRSCI is involved in that case. And if you hear about a case that involves anything having to do with tax evasion, there's a 100% chance that we're involved in it. And, you know, I like to say we have the broadest investigative jurisdiction of all the agencies because of our tax jurisdiction. You know, having the tax jurisdiction, we're the only agency that has that. Uh, and in addition to that, we have the money laundering jurisdiction and jurisdiction over many other criminal violations. Uh, as you know, and I think many of your listeners know, having that jurisdiction over money laundering and all the predicate offenses opens the door for us to be involved in many types of investigations. And, you know, whatever the investigations are that the Department of Justice is focused on and what their priorities are, we align those priorities. You know, we're, we're actively involved in counterterrorism investigations with the other agencies. You know, you name it, whatever it is, there's, there's always a financial component to those cases. And we're, we're almost always involved in those, those very significant financial cases. And another part of this that maybe people aren't aware of is the international component. I know the FBI has uh, staff around the world. Tell us a bit about IRSCI vis-a-vis international criminal activity. Incredibly proud of the the work we've done internationally, and th- this work goes back many many decades. But you know, most recently, right now we have uh, agents posted in in ten foreign posts. And interestingly, we're the only component of the IRS right now that has any individuals posted overseas. So we we have ten posts, about twenty twenty two agents posted overseas. We're preparing to open a, a new post here within the next six to nine months in Dubai, uh, and we do a lot of incredible work there. Really, if you look back at the last decade, uh, about two thousand eight two thousand nine, on the UBS investigation, which was an IRS investigation worked with the Department of Justice, and what we've done in those last 10 years, many, many financial institutions, intermediaries, uh, U.S. account holders, just an incredible timeline of success we've had internationally, and a lot of the work, a lot more work that we're doing right now. We've got an initiative underway with um, the U.K., Australia, Canada, and the Netherlands, my counterparts in those five countries, we call it the J5, the Joint Chiefs of Global Tax Enforcement, where we're partnering to try to operationalize and work together a lot closer on a lot of the, uh, the overlapping international interests that we have. So, so a lot of work going on internationally and a huge area of focus for IRSCI right now. Yeah, and you had already said that a lot of things that folks read about, uh, even if it's behind the scenes or quiet, you guys are involved in. So with the Manafort 
Cohen cases. I know you folks were involved in the FIFA corruption case several years ago. So virtually anything that touches on financial crime, as you just mentioned, uh, that gets reported or not reported, your agents, your agency is enmeshed and involved in those things. Yeah, and, and you mentioned a couple of those. And just, just the last year alone, you talk about Manafort, Michael Cohen, uh, you know, the, the ongoing FIFA case, Michael Avenatti, most recently, there's a lot of information out there in the public, public record. But a good example of, of what um, we're actively involved with at the Department of Justice and FBI on the Varsity Blues case, you know, that, the case on the, the college admission right. scandal actively involved in that case. If you stay tuned uh, and watch that press conference, our special agent in charge in Boston was, was on that press conference and spoke of the role that IRS criminal investigation played and will continue to play in that important case. Right. Yeah. And I, I think, again, it just just the, the, the wide swath of what you folks are involved in. So let's talk a bit. Agency has been around for 100 years. Financial crime has changed but it hasn't changed, right? So the, let's talk about that because on, on the one hand, certainly with, you know, cryptocurrency, um, you know, the, the ability to wire, to, to wire money, all the sort of electronic tech changes have made financial crime different in terms of the tools. But tell us a bit about financial crime way back then and today. What's the similarities? And besides the technology, what's the clear differences in your mind? It, it, it's, it's an interesting uh, it's kind of the more more things stay change, the more they stay the same. I'd say that you know the the single biggest change is just that that speed and convenience and ease at which you can move money now. Uh, all you need is a smartphone. You can transfer money if you know what you're doing around the world in a matter of seconds and a, and a click of a couple icons. Um, so that's I think the greatest change. And you look at the job of a special agent, say 50, 60 years ago. Most of what they were tracking and tracing was cash, checks, maybe some precious commodities in terms of gold and silver. Um, and then with the, you know, as air travel became easier, individuals could get on a plane and open foreign bank account, and then it's evolved. The, the change that I've seen in my career in, in a little over 27 years is really remarkable. And now, again, the ability with cryptocurrency Bitcoin and whatnot to be able to transfer money around the world so easily, it's um, it's really remarkable. And I I really I think had a had a front front row seat to see in those years how how drastically the job has changed. But at its core, you know, the fundamental elements of financial crime really remain the same. Um, that follow the money mantra that we've used for our entire history. You know, it still holds true today that. The criminals always leave a trail, whether it was 50 years ago with a, an endorsed check to now leaving a trail with, with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. These criminals are greedy. They're doing this for a reason. Um, they want their money out at a certain point in time, and there's, they leave a paper trail. And so the methods, you know, the methods of the crime have changed, and we've evolved to keep up with the criminals uh, in, in terms of our investigative methods. And, you know, when I started, and I'm dating myself here, computers were just starting to come into the government and the IRS. Uh, we didn't have cell phones, let alone smartphones. It was, you know, we started to get pagers. So just the nature of the work that we were doing, if I was out on surveillance and needed to make a call, you know, you need to pull over and find a payphone. Good luck finding a payphone now, right? 
and I'd have to yeah. pull out a calling card to call somebody. So just the you know the nature has changed, and just the those last ten years alone have been remarkable. And I you know I use this example as to how the the new breed and the the newer breed of special agent and employees so different than those of us that started decades ago. A couple of months ago, I was in Las Vegas and and talking to some agents about uh, some some of the great casework they're doing there. And we had a working lunch, and somebody had paid and brought in sandwiches for everybody. And I'm and I'm thinking to myself, you know, 15 years ago, we would all pull, pulled out our wallets and put a $10 bill on the table to pay for the sandwiches. And in this lunch, not one, you know, item of currency changed hands at all. Everybody took their smartphone out and Venmoed the money to the person that had purchased the sandwich. I mean, it's just a, it's just remarkable the way that's changed. And if you if you have kids, this is how they, you know, teenagers and and folks in their early 20s. This is how money moves now. It's just um, remarkable. But. You know the things that they—it's just new tools right now that that we need is adjusting with time. And you think about it again—the the crimes that were investigated, you know, 50, 60 years ago, you know, skimming cash to avoid paying your taxes, pretending you're you're somebody else to file a tax return—those crimes existed 60, 70 years ago, and they still exist today. They're just the way that you perpetrate them are a little bit different. And the one other point I want to make on that that's that's pretty significant in terms of, you know, we just we live in a digital age now and everything we have, we don't deal with as much paper as we used to years, years and years ago. And it wasn't uncommon if I if I went on a search warrant 20 years ago that you would get boxes and boxes of records. In fact, I can remember a case where we took an entire tractor trailer worth of financial records in an investigation. And now when agents go out on search warrants, it's much more digital. We'll get a terabyte of data or a petabyte of data and a couple of boxes of, of paper records. And agents, instead of looking for the financial records and paper, uh, what they're encountering is multiple cell phones, multiple laptops, tablets, maybe Bitcoin wallets and things like that. So, so you know, kind of as you mentioned, a lot of it's technology-based. And I think as everybody knows, you know, every year that just increases exponentially and, it, and it's more of a need for our agents and employees really to stay current with the technology and really try to try to stay one step ahead of the criminals if we can. And, and you know, what that leads me to ask you about is something that we've talked about in our community with law enforcement and with the private sector, and that's the use of technology. So on the one side, as you say, you have to stay up with the technology. The financial sector has to do that as well, not just for the products that they offer, but in the detection mechanisms, the transaction monitoring, the surveillance, and all of that. So you hear a lot about big data, uh, AI, machine learning, all that, all those terms, which have meanings, although I'm still convinced that Big data is whatever anybody says it is. I'm always not quite sure what people mean by that. But having said all that, when financial institutions use these detection method methodologies, in some cases they think, well, as long as we make these adjustments, we're good in terms of detection. But many have said, you know, at the end of the day, you still need folks with uh, investigative skills. You still need that human element in addition to the data uh, analysis, and, and I'm not prejudicing your answer, but 
What's your take on that? Because I, I don't think you can simply turn on a switch, lean back and say, we got it. There really should be people with the ability to look at the data that's been analyzed and what do you do with it? Yeah, the topic of, you know, data analytics and, and technology is, is really something that's near and dear to my heart. We could do a separate podcast just on that. It's it's something that really excites me. And I always joke when I talk about this that it's probably the least law enforcement thing to talk about when you talk about, you know, nerdy things like, like data and data data analytics. But, you know, the data doesn't lie. It's it's um, But exactly what you describe, I don't envision a day where a computer system spits out criminal cases for us. Um, but I do envision the day, and we've had some success in this area already, where we use the combination of really powerful data analytics tools to cull through millions and, in fact, billions of records coupled with really smart people, you know, to be able to, you know, just deal with that that sheer volume of, of data that we have to deal with. And I think that that being part of the IRS, we have some of the, the most valuable data, Not maybe not the most, but probably the richest financial data. And it's simply too much data for an individual to go through. I could assign, you know, 50 of my smartest agents and investigative analysts and put them in a room with all the boxes of these millions of records. And maybe in months they could come up with some leads, but now the data analytics tool will churn through all this data really, really quickly and help make connections. And then you turn that over to the investigative analysts and the agents, and they can help make those adjustments. So I think that's a, it's a really good point for us. 100% of the work that, that our agency does is financial crimes. Unlike any other federal agency, all we do is financial crimes. And you think about it, that, that using technology and data analytics is really conducive to all the work that we do. So we're really excited. We've got a lot of initiative, initiatives and investments underway in that area. Well, that's great. Uh, I want to, uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about some of the various AML reform proposals, at least the themes behind those proposals that are being considered uh, this year by the U.S. Congress. So we'll be right back. This is John Byrne, host of AML Conversations. I want to personally invite you to an event at the Hollywood ACAMS conference on April the 15th. On April the 15th, uh, from 3.05 to 4.20, we'll be having a live version of AML Conversations. Very excited about this. We're going to be having a freewheeling conversation with a number of AML professionals who everybody should know fairly well. Uh, Chuck Taylor, our brand new executive vice president and head of financial crimes advisory service at AML Right Source. Rick Small, who's chairman of the ACAMS advisory board and executive vice president and director of financial crimes at BB&T. And Dennis Lormel. Dennis is president and CEO of DML Associates, but I think as all of us in the AML community know, Dennis was the first head of TFOS uh, at the FBI right after 9-11 and a distinguished career at the FBI, but also has done a tremendous amount of work since then training 
and working with folks on whole sorts of issues, including terrorist financing and, and um, many, many other issues. So what we're going to do during that uh, conversation is we're going to talk about several things that I know will be of interest to all of us in the AML community. Career advice. We're going to talk about legislation. There's a number of legislative proposals that we actually think might get some traction in 2019 and what their potential impact might be. We're also going to uh, discuss how to work with law enforcement. Private-public partnerships are just so, so important to us in the AML field, and so we thought it was particularly valuable that we've had these three individuals talk about that. So we're looking forward to seeing you in Hollywood, Florida. Again, uh, the ACAMS conference that starts on April the 15th, that Monday. Actually, there's some sessions on this on the 14th, but from the 15th to the 17th, AML Right Source, we will have a booth there. A number of our staff will be there as well, and several of us will be participating in a number of sessions. But we are really excited about the AML Knowledge Session on Monday, April the 15th, which, which I know is tax day, and we may actually cover some issues relating to that as well. So Monday from 3.05 to 4.20, a live version of AML Conversations. Looking forward to seeing everybody, seeing you there. This is is John Byrne thanking you for being a previous listener to AML Conversations and for past editions of the podcast. You can go on to amlrightsource.com. See you in a few weeks. So, Don, we know that uh, in 2019, there's been a increase, I would argue, an increase in the focus by the House and the Senate and looking at the AML infrastructure, if you will. There's been a number of issues dealing with everything from uh, beneficial ownership to kleptocracy to uh, looking at reporting, looking at um, the need for innovation in AML. So there's been a series of hearings and some introduced bills and then some drafts that people have been referring to. And while I won't ask you to comment on specific specific pieces of legislation, I, I am very interested in a couple of themes. So one would be, we talked before, you talked before at the beginning of the, of the conversation, you talked about um, tax evasion. And one of the things that obviously enables or enhances tax evasion is the use of shell companies. And we've seen it um, emphasized in the Panama Paradise Papers. We certainly know it's been a long-term uh, long-time problem um, in terms of uh, oversight. There are some legislative proposals that go further than the current CDD rule that the bankers are obligated or the financial sector is obligated, has been obligated to implement um, since May of um, 2018. So that that's active. Uh, that's an active regulatory requirement, but there's been some uh, proposals and some talk about increasing that focus by having the companies that incorporate actually send their information either to Treasury or to FinCEN. I won't ask you about that, but just in general, is it fair to say that law enforcement could clearly benefit uh, from additional information regarding uh, incorporation than, than we currently have today? 
Yes, and, and John, you mentioned this at the beginning that, that uh, you know, I can't comment on anything specifically. You know, we're a law enforcement agency, so we enforce the laws that, that get passed. But but we are, you know, have a have a keen eye towards a lot of the different legislation. I know there's a lot that's pending out there. But, you know, to the point and the question that you, that you ask, you know, I describe it this way, and we support legislation, you know, that increases transparency into financial transactions. Has, and as I've said a couple of times, all we do is financial, you know, financial and criminal investigations. So any, you know, law regulation proposal that that increases transparency into financial transactions, such as you mentioned with beneficial ownership, shell companies, um, the ability to understand who actually owns those. Um, we're generally supportive of, you know, the, the more inform more information that we can get to help us, you know, in our right. financial investigations, we're supportive of. And, and you know, I, I also describe it this way, that the, you know, the greater insight and, and financial transparency into financial transactions that we have, um, the, the less likelihood there is going to be fraud. So, in other words, think about it in terms of if you're a W-2 employee or 1099 employee, um, we have a lot of insight into what's what's going on in those transactions. When there's CTRs filed, FBARs, things like that, we have a paper trail to go on. And and for you know financial investigators, that's what it's all about. So that the more and and the the flip side of that is also true. The less transparency we have into financial transactions, um, I'm not saying we can't solve those cases, but it's additional steps for law enforcement and financial investigators to be able to peel back those layers and prove up those violations. Right. And, you know, I've always believed myself that it, I understand the the rationale for the CDD rule, but what always troubled me was you have states like Delaware, Nevada, Montana, and other places where virtually the incorporation uh, demands very little information. And I know there's politics behind the states not wanting to do more than that. There's been some support for some of these proposals that would have the individual companies send their information directly somewhere. So I, again, certainly don't want your view on the specifics. So I think that's important. But I also did see recently a very interesting study by Global Financial Integrity that talked about it's harder to get a library card than it is to incorporate, which is mind boggling to me and not sort of not a surprise, but just the fact that they were able to point out the disparity between those two actions tells me we need something. But I think to your point, law enforcement definitely benefits from more transparency. Uh, there's there, you know, and if it forces companies to be more direct um, and, and allow um, government and allow just the public to know what's going on, we're just better off for that. So uh, I'll move on from that point. But I, I did want to mention that that study from Global Financial Integrity, because to me that was very intriguing that they did it that way, and it's pretty easy to explain. Library card, harder to get than it is to uh, incorporate in Delaware or Montana. Um, let's shift. Uh, some of the other proposals that are out there originally looked at changing thresholds for SARS and CTRs, and I will confess that years ago, um, 2004 or five, I was active in – a group um, with the Bankers Association because we believe at that time to, that thresholds should have been increased, that it would help in, in not just burden reduction but value data and all that. I no longer believe that, by the way, because I think technology 
has shifted in such a way that increasing thresholds is really it, it'll lose information, but it's not really going to gain any efficiencies. So uh, I think that has been proven uh, to, to, to be a non-starter, and I think there's value in that. So I don't think that's no longer the case. But I want to focus on SARS from this perspective. The same proposals talked about increasing SAR thresholds, that somehow that was going to be a burden reducer, where my, my view is if I'm a small bank and I'm filing a SAR, I actually want you or your peers to investigate, even if it's a $4,000 fraud, even, you know, uh, at, at least the local level, because I'm a small bank. So raising the threshold actually didn't make sense to me. But the question to you is not that. The question is the value proposition of SARS. It's come under some attack, which I think is a tad bit misplaced, that all SARS aren't reviewed. They're not all valuable. The value proposition is it's only if you, meaning law enforcement, contact a filer, which, again, is just not even logical. But talk about the SAR infrastructure from your perspective. What is the value to law enforcement? And I know you'd be, you've been asked this all your career and will continue to be asked this. Do you look at all the SARs? So take that any way you'd like. Yeah. The, uh, you know, again, for the work that we do, I, I can't you know, overstate how important the SARS and the BSA data are in all of the work that we do. It doesn't matter what type of case, whether it's tax, money laundering, or other, it's integral to everything that we do. It's, it's expected of every single agent to be constantly checking the system for the current cases. So it helps us, you know, reactively to the cases that we current have, currently have in inventory, but also to, you know, develop trends and see what's coming around the corner if there's other, you know, particular threats that are out there. Uh, so it's, you know, from our, our perspective, we don't support lowering the thresholds. Again, from a law enforcement standpoint, that data is incredibly valuable to us. You know, we certainly don't want to overburden banks, uh, especially small banks that may not have the resources. But in my, you know, many years of experience, I don't always see that there's a correlation between the dollar amount of the transaction, whether we're talking about a SAR or CTR, and the value that it pre presents to, to law enforcement. In fact, I, there's many cases that I've seen, successful criminal cases, adjudicated criminal cases, where a relatively small financial transaction that we knew about only because of the filing of a BSA form led to that successful case. And in fact, in most in most instances, I'd say there's probably not a correlation between the two. Um, so, I mean, we understand the burden and we try to, you know, we, we like to work with our, you know, AML and banking partners. But I think for us, again, we may not be the largest volume user, but I can tell you in terms of the percentage of our workforce, that uses the BSA data, it's incredibly valuable. Um, it's, it's incredibly valuable for leads for all types of cases, tax, money laundering, and everything else. Yeah, you know, I, again, I, I just think um, the notion that all the SARS that get filed, you know, the millions, whatever the total is, that there would be a one-to-one -one correlation, just I, I don't know who comes up with these um, with these thoughts, because it's clear the banks are making, and all financial sector filers are making a call based on the analysis they've done on a particular account or series of accounts that whatever they're reporting is an anomaly 
that needs to be looked at, not that the institution knows specifically what the crime might be. And as you just said earlier, there's over, you know, 200 plus predicate offenses, any crime of which uh, if money's moved is a money laundering offense. So if the banks are, are doing this correctly, and I believe most of them are, it's not just a case of defensive filing. It's, a, it's filing based on their analysis uh, then that could be used to bolster a case, maybe start one. Uh, but the notion that each individual one by itself uh, is going to have the same amount of value, again, I think just takes us away from trying to reform a process, an overall process that, that needs review. So I, I, I do, I think as you guys continue to do your outreach, which I'm going I'm to morph into that right now, I think it's important to continue to say what, what practitioners know to be the case. They get reviewed, they get analyzed, uh, and many times it's sort of a piece of different puzzles, right? And you put the puzzle pieces together and, and, you, and you come up with uh, the picture that you're looking for. I know, for example, here in Northern Virginia, the Northern Virginia HIDA, the SAR review team there, they physically look at every SAR that comes their way. Uh, and sometimes it's physically going through paper, you know, printing them out and going through them to make determinations. So nothing goes unreviewed by somebody. So I think that's pretty important. Yeah, and so one other point ahead. I want to make yeah. that, John, is that, and you kind of alluded to this, but the, you know, the, our ability to reach out directly to every filer is not, it's not realistic or practical, but the way I describe it is, you know, something that's on an SAR or CTR, it may not be important to us today or next month, but it could be years from now that something in one of these these forms that's filed, uh, an account, an asset, an associate that's listed on there, may link us and may be the key to a case in the future. And the, the, the data mining and analytical tools that I talked about now allow us to sift through this the, these, these records really, really quickly. And you mentioned the Northern Virginia HIDA. IRSCI has a has a lead role in SAR task forces in every judicial district. So right, it, sure. in some cases we look to them physically. Some case it's a combination of, of physical and technology. But you know, just just an incredibly uh, valuable information can't um, overstate that point. So two more quick topics. One uh, we've already alluded to it. That's the the whole notion of private public partnership working with. Uh, your private sector partners and vice versa. I've been around long enough to have seen it in action where many of your peers and colleagues around the country have vehicles uh, to share information or at least share themes and issues uh, throughout the country. So whether it be a state banking association sitting down with local IRS agents to see what's, what's going on in our particular part of, of the U.S., or um, sharing in, uh, sharing successes uh, when it, when an agent is involved in, in a successful investigation or case, or vice versa. When a banker is, there's been acknowledgement going both ways. That's extremely extremely helpful. So talk a bit about private public uh, partnership. Again, I think regionally it makes a lot of sense. Nationally, and of course, internationally as well. But what's working, and what would you like to see improved? Uh, you know, I think events 
you know, doing podcasts, things like this help with the outreach. They help amplify the message. You talked about different speaking events. I do a lot of speaking. I expect all my executives and senior leaders to to get out there and talk about what we do and and that outreach and meet meet with the banking and ML partners. Um, but you know, the talking piece only gets us so far. The the getting up there and, and talking about what we do, it's great. We need to do it, but we need more action. Um, I don't ever hear anybody in law enforcement say it's a bad idea to cooperate with banking and AML professionals. And I'm sure you've never heard that either. So it's but we've got to take it. You know, my my expectation is really taking it beyond the talking, um, because I think we, we can move the needle more. And and there's the the my kind of my thought has kind of evolved on this from the D.C. based, you know, headquarters. High-level meetings are great when I get together with my counterparts in law enforcement and banking, but where I see the real strength and power is the regional groups. And there's a couple I I think of as best practices, and I know um, you're involved with some of these. I'm talking about the Mid-Atlantic AML, the West Coast AML group. Phoenix has a great one. It's that mix of law enforcement, bankers, AML professionals, um, sharing information, recognizing bankers that have provided information to law enforcement. Um, I see a huge difference because those folks are part of that community. It's not a talking head from D.C., but they care about their community. They're tuned in to what the particular threats are in that community and what you know, I'm getting ready to roll out this year and we're going to do really make a push on over the next 18 months is making sure we've got that coverage around the country. You know, looking at starting other groups, having our senior leaders get out there and meet with the banking professionals to try to make more of an impact and, and use some of those groups that are that I consider to be kind of best practices out there. Yeah, and that's a really good point because to some degree you do want to hear from folks like yourself and, and you know, senior people within agencies who can talk high level. You, you can obviously talk specifically too, but talk high level about um, projects and themes and issue spotting. But to have uh, roundtables where you talk about typologies, case study, you know, finished cases, lessons learned, all those sorts of things where people can roll up their sleeves and say, you know, we did, you know, one of the best examples of the private sector working with the public sector seven, eight years ago, we got together analysts from law enforcement and from the private sector who looked at activity that could be indicators of human trafficking, put a bunch of um, typologies and red flags together and published those to the broader AML community. So I think you could do that in, um, uh, you can do that with the theft, art thefts and antiquities. You can do that with the opioid issue, all those sorts of things. But it's one thing to say, these are issues that are important to us, but here's some specific examples of what we can do. And I know, I know your peers and, and colleagues relish that and many in the private sector would really benefit from continuing that. So I think that's an excellent goal to have. And obviously we'd like to help you with that as, as we all try to create more forums and more opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, last thing, last thing, uh, I want to give you a chance to, to sell the agency. And what I mean by that is for a number of years, sadly, you've lost agents uh, to early retirement. There hasn't been the, the, the resource additions that I think all, all of us would argue are necessary to, to keep your agency uh, as strong as it's ever been, but you're, you have some opportunities now to bring on uh, new agents. So, A, how is that going? And B, 
what are the skill sets, uh, I'm assuming they're various, skill sets that you're looking for to be an IRSCI agent? Yeah, so I try not to complain too much about uh, the lack of resources. I mean, obviously, I think everybody always wants more and more and more, but having over 2,000 special agents nationwide, we, we still have a strong workforce, and it's still, I mean, it's incredible. We talked about some of the cases early on. The cases that we're, we're doing right now are just incredibly in, impactful in the, in the financial community, so I don't want to take away from that. But, yeah, over the last seven years, we've, we've lost – uh, close to a thousand special agents to you know the the uh, voluntary retirement. In that point, you know, since that time, we've only hired about 250. You know, a one to four ratio of replacement. So, really excited now to be able to about over the next 18 months, hopefully hire about 300 new special agents. So, you know, more than the last seven years combined. Um, there's a lot that goes with that. You know, a lot. You know, that we don't have time to talk about here today, but. You know, getting the training infrastructure back up in place at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, making sure we have experienced agents to train these new, uh, these new agents, making sure that we've got current recruiting methods. So we're using, you know, what we used to recruit 20 years ago doesn't work with the, the agents that we're looking for now in terms of reaching out to them on social media and other platforms that we need to kind of refresh. But in terms of the, the types of agents that we're looking for, you know, we work for the IRS, so we're always going to have that basic accounting skill requirement for our agents. Um, but we're looking for, you know, diversity in terms of cyber and data skills, some uh, on the agent side, but also on the investigative analyst side, those that, you know, don't want to be agents but want to be a part of what we do, data scientists and folks strong, strong in that cyber, obviously making sure that we represent the communities we serve. There's a lot of parts of the country that are a little bit more difficult to recruit for than, than others. But it's, um, you know, again, 100th year, really exciting time to really be adding to the to the forces. And a lot of these cases, these field offices haven't had a lot of new employees. And it really energizes an office to get new employees into the office. So really, really excited about that. So I'll get you out of here on this. Um, 100 years of the organization, you're uh, leading, leading that organization now. What, what are you most proudest of in terms of your professional career? Almost 28 years at the IRS and obviously moved up through the ranks to where you are. What are you most proud of? And one, maybe, as we like to say, one quick takeaway for the private sector, maybe something either they're not aware of or something they need to add to know. So what are you proudest of and what would you, what would be your, uh, advice to the private sector regarding working with IRS. Yeah, so it's a little bit of a cop out to answer the answer the question, you know, with the question. But it, it does give me, and I, I led with this. It gives me immense pride, you know, to have worked my way up through the organization, you know, at the hundredth year to be able to lead the organization. And, and I look back on my, you know, almost twenty eight years. There weren't many of those years that we were led by a career special agent. So I think it's I think it's impactful for the organization to have somebody that's come up through the ranks. Um, it, really incredibly proud of the work that we're doing in terms of technology and, and taking the agency into the future. And during those times of kind of lean lean hiring, we did a great job and really proud of the work that we all did, kind of getting ourselves ready and building the agency of the future so that when we did get the ability to hire, we'd really 
you know, have a leg up in terms of building the agency of the future. So, you know, I'd say that's what I'm most proud of. And, you know, the message to the um, to, to the private industry and, and the banking and AML folks, I think, would be this. Um, be open and receptive, receptive to working with law enforcement, whether it's IRS or other agencies. It's a two-way street. You know, we're going to reach out. We hope that you're receptive to us reaching out. And I think the challenge I would give that I've given to my own folks, but I would also give to the private sector is, you know, why not set up the next, you know, AML group? I talked about the the West Coast and the Mid-Atlantic. You know, why not why not come up with a new one and and be part of that on the ground floor? Because I think that there again, I've seen where those groups. It's not just people talking. I've seen successful cases come out of those relationships. So I, I would, uh, we look forward to working with with the private sector, you know, for years to come, and excited about um, hopefully forming some new some new successful groups out there. John, I want to thank you so much uh, for spending the time with me today, and also uh, thank you and your entire staff, the entire agency, for their tremendous service to the country. It's it's so important uh, that we not simply recognize the anniversary, but that, as you just said, working closely with law enforcement makes us all stronger. So thanks so much for spending time with me today. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Well, hopefully you can detect the passion from Don Ford. 28 years at the Internal Revenue Service, working his way up through the ranks to become chief is much more than impressive. The commitment he has to the men and women of the organization has been clear since he stepped into that role as chief. And I think it's particularly important that he is the face of that organization on its 100th year anniversary. Hopefully you've learned a bit about uh, financial crime through the years and obviously the importance of working closely with the private and public sectors. I think that to me is, is the constant message. The IRS will be celebrating, IRSCI will be celebrating the 100 year anniversary uh, throughout the year, 2019. Don is gonna be speaking at the West Coast AML Conference in May, be part of the ACAMS conference in Vegas uh, later this year in the fall, and they will be doing other events throughout the year. If you're in the AML community, you already know this, but take a look at irs.gov and look at some of the information on enforcement actions, cases, and other important information. I just again want to thank the Internal Revenue Service Criminal Division staff for all the great work they've done throughout the years, and we're just very proud that they are um, partners with us in the AML community. This is John Byrne from AML Conversations. Hope to see some of you at the ACAMS conference in Hollywood coming up next week and throughout the year. Thanks again for listening.